You're listening to a CNA podcast. I work in news. And if you're listening to this podcast, you're also probably interested in what happens in our world. But after the headlines grab our attention, they only linger in our consciousness for about seven days. Yeah, according to one study, only a week. Still, the events continue to unfold long after our minds have moved on. And that's why we're focusing on Myanmar today. Operation 1027 is a campaign named after the day it began in October of last year. Ethnic armed organizations and other resistance groups came together to try to end military rule. And surprisingly, they've been pretty successful. It began with the Three Brotherhood Alliance in northern Shan State. Then it spread. But what's happening now? CNA's Leung Wai Kit joins me to discuss whether or not the military has met its match. Wai Kit, so happy to see you. Happy to see you too, Teresa. So you've watched Myanmar for some time now, and I want to know, when you first caught wind of this resistance movement, what did you think? What did your sources inside the country make of it? Well, when it first happened, I set up, because we know that the ethnic armed forces have been loosely combating the Myanmar military. We also know that some of these armed forces had been training uh, your civilian forces. But back then on October 27, that was the first time that these three ethnic armies came together to launch an offensive. So there's some sort of coordination there. Now, back then, my first question was, why now? Mm -hmm. Because some of the objectives that they laid out included getting rid of Myanmar junta dictatorship, protecting civilians and among other things to also get rid of online scam syndicates that are operating in northern Shan state. So I spoke to one insider who is close to all these ethnic armies as well as the Myanmar junta and he told me, Waikit, don't be distracted by what you see. Hmm. It is not a nationalistic or an altruistic objective. Basically, these three ethnic armies, all they want to do is to wrest back control of certain territories. So I asked then why throw in this line of wanting to get rid of Myanmar Junta dictatorship. And he said that if you are launching an offensive, it is an easy narrative for you to go all out, national level, get rid of Myanmar Junta dictatorship. Mm. And then as time passed, as events unfolded, it made a lot more sense what he told me. Because we know for a fact that China had been very frustrated with the lack of progress of getting rid of all these online scam syndicates that are operating near its borders. And the Myanmar junta is either incapable or unwilling to do anything about it. And so when these ethnic armies in the northern Shan state started their operation, it appears that the Myanmar junta woke up. Because it then started saying, oh, oh, we've arrested this alleged mastermind, we've arrested these number of people and we're sending them back to China. I think the count as of now, as of this recording, is around 40,000 Chinese citizens who have been arrested. And these are allegedly involved in online scams and have been sent back to China. I want to know where things are right now. There are 330 townships in Myanmar. And at the time of this recording, Waikit, how many of them does the military actually still have control over? Can you give us a sense of how much ground Myanmar's generals have lost at this point? Right. The big picture is, as you said, Myanmar has 330 townships countrywide. Of these 330, 50 townships are under martial law. This means that these townships under martial law have very harsh penalties for a list of offences that include spreading fake news, incitement, and some of these punishments can include the death penalty. 
So 50 of these 330 townships under martial law, arguably you might say that the army has control of these 50 townships, but the flip side is that perhaps it's because they don't have control of these townships that they have to roll out martial law. What we know for a fact is that the Myanmar Junta has openly said it doesn't have full control of the country. It has about 52% control in Myanmar. The opposing national unity government says that it has control of some 54% of the country. What this means is that they have set up your administrative systems, they have their own civilian policemen, Mm. judiciary systems in those towns. But the trick here is this. Recently, the Myanmar Junta had vowed to attack all these seized towns and just bomb them, quote-unquote, non-stop. So even if one party has control over another, violence looks set to continue. Uh, We're on the cusp of the three-year anniversary of the military coup. That's going to be February 1st. And the military, they seem to have an iron grip on power for much of this time, Waikid. But then, you know, we heard reports starting to emerge, low morale among soldiers, there were defections. What would you say are the main reasons that this resistance movement has been able to take hold in the first place? I think it is the element of surprise. Remember, October 27 was the day of the launch. Mm -hmm. Weeks before that, the Myanmar army had held its yearly anniversary of the nationwide ceasefire agreement event. So leaders of these ethnic armies who were planning to attack the Myanmar army had attended that event. So it was a surprise because the Myanmar army had later on come out to slam these ethnic armies saying that, hey, you're hypocrites. You came to Naypyidaw, came together and and said, we want peace. And then weeks later, you attacked behind our back. Mm. So there was this element of surprise. And I would say that... Even the national unity government was caught off guard. I would say that even the NUG was not involved in the planning. I mean, I reached out to the NUG to ask very directly, where were you in the planning process? The answer was, Waiki, we're not at liberty to tell you this, but I can tell you that the NUG's objective matches objectives of the Brotherhood Alliance, and it is to get rid of Myanmar junta dictatorship. So it tells you that there's some element of surprise. And when you have this element of surprise, you are suddenly caught off guard. Mm-hmm. And which is why the first wave of attacks perhaps surprised the Myanmar army. And remember that it's not just Northern Shan State that we are seeing fighting. We also see Rakhine State run by the Arakan army, who is also part of the Brotherhood Alliance, also attacking the Myanmar army. So in terms of tactics, you, you suddenly have all your soldiers being, say, deployed to one area. And then weeks later, your Arakan army attacks in another area. So there's this Mm -hmm. element of surprise. But I must say that the Myanmar army is now back on its momentum. It is using airstrikes to counter attacks. Of course, at this point of recording, one of the latest airstrikes is in Sagaing, where children among the 16 thereabout civilians have died as a result of, of all these airstrikes. On your point about defections, yes, even before the Myanmar military, defections are quite common, but not by such huge numbers. The latest defection is the first regional level defection, some 2,000 over soldiers surrendering. So Hmm. you can imagine the amount of ammunition, the weapons that they surrender to the resistance forces. There are a few theories as to why they defect. One, perhaps they are genuinely tired. They're genuinely afraid that, look, if we fight back, the Myanmar army is not going to back us up. So that could be one theory. There are also analysts saying that the fact that these soldiers on the ground are not firing a single shot to fight back tells us that the Myanmar army has no other tactic other than airstrikes. But there's also another 
expert. He's been looking into the peace process of the Myanmar army as well as the ethnic armies. And he said that these defections could be a political chip, a bargaining chip, if you will. Now, his name is Amaratiha. He is, like I said, an expert on the peace process. Let's take a listen to what he said. They had different kind of narrative in there. Some people said the, the commander in that area unilaterally decided to withdraw without having any order. Some say this is a political agreement, but they do so soon before the final agreement is reached. Waikit, some say that this is the best possible chance to overthrow the military leaders, even though you say it sounds like they're gaining their footing once again. Can you explain the dynamic, not just of the different ethnic groups and the armed factions, but also their civil society, right? And the public too, reports saying that they're taking part to some degree. Right. Right now, Every stakeholder, your ethnic armed groups, the civilians, as well as members of public, or rather the civilian national unity government and the members of public, they all have their own goals, but they all overlap. Right now, the most overlapped in that center of all this Venn diagram is mm-hmm. they want to get rid of Myanmar Junta dictatorship. But essentially, they all want different things. The NUG, for instance, wants the Myanmar army to go back to the barracks where they belong, don't interfere in politics, don't even have your guaranteed 25% of army MPs in parliament. They want them to go back to the barracks. The ethnic armed forces have been for the longest time fighting for more autonomy, more territory. Civilians, of course, they want their voices to be heard. They have voted for... Aung San Suu Kyi's National League for Democracy Party overwhelmingly in 2020. So all these different stakeholders have different goals. But right now, the common goal is to fight the Myanmar Junta dictatorship and Mm -hmm. get rid of them. Okay, so the National Unity Government, or NUG, as you mentioned, they're the government in exile formed by lawmakers and MPs, and they were ousted during the coup about three years ago. Specifically, Waikit, what's their role in this operation? And a lot of people wondering, where does Aung San Suu Kyi feature in all of this? Nowhere. 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 Aung San Suu Kyi is incommunicado, but my latest information from my source tells me that she's in jail. So we don't know where she is. She has no access to anyone But I must say that the NUG, the National Unity Government, is in a way an extension or a manifestation of what Aung San Suu Kyi herself wants. Because after the 2020 elections, which I'll repeat, the NLD had won overwhelmingly, even faring better than 2015. Mm. But Aung San Suu Kyi back then appeared to have heard people's voices because people had been critical of her saying that, look, majority of your ministers are Burma majority. And so she had this idea of a national unity government to be more inclusive, to put in more ethnic voices in the government. But before she could roll that out, of course, the coup happened. So the ousted lawmakers as well as other stakeholders came together to form the national unity government. So in a way, that is Aung San Suu Kyi's vision. Mm -hmm. But what they're currently doing in this context of forming people's defense forces, which are civilian troops to fight against the Myanmar army, we don't know whether or not Aung San Suu Kyi would agree to what they're doing. Mm-hmm. I really like your description of these agendas in terms of a Venn diagram. You know, On the surface, it seems pretty clear that there's one goal, get rid of the military, but that's not where the story ends. 
Our colleague on the podcast team, his name is Sai. He's actually sitting right next to me as we speak. He is from Myanmar and he went to visit his parents just last month over the holidays. And when he came back, I asked him, what is life like right now for the average person under military rule? And he said his parents, his brother, they still go to work. They still get groceries. It's pretty normal in Yangon, at least. But what really struck me was what he said when I asked what has changed the most for him. And he said that it's the feeling that he has when he walks down the street. Sai told me he's on edge. He sort of looks over his shoulder because there's a climate of fear now ever since the coup happened. And why kid? he told me people are getting robbed, they're getting scammed more frequently because that sense of law and order has somewhat disappeared. Observers say what happens next if the military is ousted is a huge question mark, right? There's so many people vying for power, different groups jostling for position. They have their own agendas, as we spoke about. If the military were to be removed, who would take their place, Waikid? What are your sources saying about a potential political vacuum if this military leadership collapses? Well, this is a very big question to tackle, Teresa. Yeah. And I read an article where my friend Sharon Sia from ICC Yusuf Ishak Institute, she's an expert on ASEAN, and she's also a former diplomat. And that question was tackled in that article. And the question was whether or not ASEAN was ready if Myanmar were to break up. And she said ASEAN would most certainly be caught off guard. Mm-hmm. I agree with Sharon, but I might not use the words caught off guard. I might say surprise. And I say this because... I don't think, and this is my personal take, based on observations and and having spoken to people, I don't think the Myanmar army would ever falter. Hmm. It has not been out of the political scene for the longest time. And even after the coup, yes, we have seen reshuffles. In fact, just yesterday, of course, we're recording today, yesterday there was a major reshuffle in the Navy, there was a major reshuffle of certain security advisors, And there have been such major reshuffles since 2021. We've also seen the Myanmar army taking action against its own people for what it calls corruption. I've also been hearing sources telling me that, hey, the retired senior generals are very unhappy with what Min Online is doing. They don't agree with him. And other sources have also told me that, yes, they don't agree with what Min Online is doing, but nobody is going to step up and say, I'm going to take over you. So Mm. there's a very low chance of a coup within a coup. Mm. So all these signs show that the Myanmar army is still going to be there. The structure is still going to be there. It's a matter of who is the puppet master, so to speak. Mm. So I agree with Sharon that ASEAN would be caught off guard or or surprised because we don't see this coming. We don't see that the Myanmar army is going to be out of the equation anytime. Do any of your contacts or people that you've talked to had any sense that the military is afraid right now, though? Well, I personally feel that the Myanmar army is concerned, not afraid, but concerned on one particular thing, the hope that people are having, hope that people have that they will eventually overthrow the Myanmar junta. And I say this because shortly after 1027, it began its campaign of pointing out fake news. And it's doing this every day, saying that, oh, this piece of news, that this plane was shot down or this village was burned, fake news. I strongly believe that the Myanmar army recognizes that this is something they have to fight because if people have hope, they could be motivated to do more. So what this tells me is that the Myanmar army clearly knows that people's voices could be a threat to itself. Therefore, it's doing what it can on the online sphere to point out, oh, this is fake news. And in areas where they can't control, experts are saying that they are using airstrikes to just bomb villages. 
So maybe they're not truly afraid that they will be toppled, but they are concerned that these are some of the things that could poke holes into their, their authority, their hold onto power. And Teresa, I want to talk a little bit about balkanization or the fear of the country breaking up. This is something that is very entrenched in Myanmar. The Myanmar military appears to be spooked by the idea that Myanmar can break up and secede. And every year, whenever they meet for peace conferences, they make sure that all ethnic armies agree that they will not break up the country. So this idea of breaking up the country appears to be a fear among the Myanmar military. But my source, my expert, Amara Diha, says that this may not be the case. He says that the army has to use this fear of balkanization to secure their power. Let's take a listen to what Amara Diha said. The military always needs some form of uh, political objective so they can keep maintaining as a political leadership role. So without this ideology, there is no political cause for the Myanmar military to be part of political leadership. Now, that is Amara Diha's view. I have a different take. Of late, the Myanmar army has been raising the point of, oh, these, so to speak, terrorists are attacking the country and we could eventually be at risk of breaking up. What this tells me is that the Myanmar army is now using this phrase, which is, like I said, very closely linked to the constitution, which protects the country from breaking up. Mm. My take is that the Myanmar army wants to raise this to perhaps warn others that if you force my hand, I can take even more drastic measures to attack you to protect the country from breaking up. But again, that's my view based on my observations. Mm. China, you mentioned China off the top. It was a factor at the beginning of this resistance movement. They have influence in this conflict, don't they? They brokered a temporary ceasefire last month. They've mediated peace talks as well. Is China going to be the answer here? What's Beijing's end goal in Myanmar? Right. Now, I must say that as, as we speak, on this day of recording, China is holding its third round of peace talks. The previous two rounds, as you mentioned, Theresa, there was a truce that was brought up, but it wasn't adhered to. Now, what's at stake for China? Very, very simply, it is their economic interests. Because even during this Operation 1027, there was a recent deal signed between China and, and Myanmar, or and this is a Belt Road Initiative project. So it's very obvious to them that they want to advance their economic interests. They also want to protect the civilians who are at the borders. And China has various tools that it can use to perhaps pull strings here and there. Mm -hmm. With the Myanmar military, we know that China uh, always protects Myanmar from the UN Security Council. And China always has very close ties with Myanmar. Very recently, there was the highest level bilateral visit. A vice foreign minister from China visited Myanmar, met me online. There have always been other exchanges. I always see that the Chinese ambassador to Myanmar constantly meets with the Myanmar military. So there's that level of engagement. Mm -hmm. With the ethnic armed forces, we also know that China has open communications with the ethnic armed groups. And with NUG, now the National Unity Government had, at the start of this year, published a very simple policy on China. One of it is that it will support the One China principle. And also, NUG says that it will protect China's interests. 
So if you look at all these from China's point of view, I now have all these stakeholders who want to work with me, your ethnic armed groups, mm-hmm. the Myanmar Junta and NUG. So you do have strings to pull to ensure that your interests are protected in Myanmar. Yeah, they're in a position of strength if you look at it that way. Waikit ASEAN, they've been criticized for its lack of an effective policy on Myanmar, the failed five-point consensus, of course. How prepared would you say is ASEAN for the military leadership to be removed? You mentioned it's highly unlikely, but if something were to happen, is there concern among ASEAN about, say, migration across borders? Or would you say that the bloc is too distracted by other conflicts in the world? If I were to pose this question to any minister or any leader in ASEAN, they will say they're not distracted Mm -hmm. because it is important for the bloc to make sure that they can handle the issues in its own backyard. Let's not forget that when Myanmar was viewed as a pariah state back in the 90s, ASEAN had opened its doors and welcomed the regime leaders Mm -hmm. into Myanmar. And then when Aung San Suu Kyi's NLD took power, they had very close ties And today, we have ASEAN standing firm on the Myanmar crisis, not welcoming the Myanmar military to ASEAN leader or ASEAN foreign minister level meetings. So ASEAN has, I would say, its archive of good ties with Myanmar, whether it's with the old guard, the military guard, or with the civilian guards. And it's very obvious that ASEAN is trying to not take a position because while it has excluded Myanmar army chief and the foreign minister to ASEAN level and foreign minister level meetings, they're also not including the NUG. Mm. So ASEAN will still have its tools, will still have its strings to pull, but ASEAN has no mechanism to endorse or to criticize any form of leadership change. Okay, we have to talk about what's next in the country, what's next in Myanmar's democratic quest. Beyond Operation 1027 Waikid, ethnic Kareni forces, they launched their own movement. They called it Operation 1111. It took place November 11th of last year. And that operation also saw some success. What would you say we can expect to see unfold in the coming months? I would say for sure, violence, because it has never stopped since 2021, regardless of what happened. ASEAN leaders made decisions against Myanmar. Cambodia chair, when they were ASEAN chair, then Prime Minister Hun Sen visited Myanmar in the hope that they would de-escalate violence. Nothing was done. The next thing that I'm looking out for would be February 1st, because that's the anniversary of the coup. That's also the mm-hmm. expiration date of their extended and extended against state of emergency. I've spoken to some sources and they say that they will definitely extend state of emergency. It's just whether or not it is in that form or, or, or another. So the bottom line is, come February 1st, the Myanmar army is going to have to make an announcement, but the announcement will still benefit the Myanmar army. The announcement will still make sure that it is ensconced in leadership. Seems like the goalposts will just keep moving. The political situation in Myanmar continues to be turbulent, and I really appreciate you keeping an eye on all of these developments for us, Waikit. Thank you, Teresa. And before we go, a reminder for our listeners that you can watch CNA Correspondent episodes on our network every Wednesday at 9.30pm. Catch up with them anytime on cna.asia. The team behind this episode is Saya Wynn, Clara Ong, Crispina Robert and myself, Teresa Tang. Thanks very much for listening. <laughs>